Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. You're welcome in this place. God, you're welcome in my life, Holy Spirit, that you would empower me today to speak your truth. God, that it would be your word that goes forth from this place today, not mine. God, that, that you would be the one by your Holy Spirit who brings conviction, who brings the desire to change and the power to do so, the one who brings comfort, the one who brings encouragement, the one who wraps his loving arms around and fills up from the inside out with peace that is unexplainable in a trial. God, I ask that you would be the one to do those things, to convict, comfort, encourage, to transform today as only you can. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Invade my life now. Give me power to speak. And Holy Spirit, I welcome you. And I ask those who are watching to right now welcome the Holy Spirit into your presence, that the Holy Spirit would work in you to do a mighty work today as you watch and as you listen to what God wants to unfold to you today from his word. So Holy Spirit, we welcome you. Fill this place. Fill my life. Fill the lives of those watching, Lord that they would be transformed as only you can do. And God, we give you the praise right now in faith that in the moments ahead, you are going to do a work that you and you alone can do. You can start something that you will finish today. And we will give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, welcome, welcome back, everybody, uh, Calvary family and those watching from other places and when, whenever and wherever you are, welcome to uh, this teaching from God's Word in Romans chapter 9. Now, I have to be honest, um, as I have looked forward in the previous weeks to the fact that we're going to land here in chapter 9 and in the subsequent chapters, um, it's not with any small weight that I approach this. Uh, it has not struck fear or trepidation into me at all, but it has given me cause to spend a little extra time praying about, thinking about these scriptures, because I want what I share today to build so much confidence in you, build so much unity amongst the brothers and sisters in Christ, and this passage has the tendency to divide people theologically. Uh, perhaps other than the Holy Spirit's gifts and the use of those today, which we firmly believe in here at a Pentecostal Assembly of God church, other than those Pentecostal gifts, this perhaps is one of the more divisive chapters in all of Scripture. It has separated those who believe in the uh, unconditional election and limited atonement and irresistible grace and the perseverance of the saints and the total depravity uh, those things that are uh, the five points of Calvinism. Um, it has caused people to believe in those wholeheartedly. It has also caused the reaction to that, an Arminius theology, uh, which believes in the anti of all of those five points. And we as followers of God here in the Assemblies of God certainly lean more toward the Arminian interpretation, but I don't believe that we could find ourselves in either one of these human camps we must find ourselves trusting God with what he has said and trusting God with the fact that he is a trustworthy and awesome God who manages and controls yet allows for free will and superintends it all. And we may not be able to get our minds around that fully as human beings, and I'm okay with that. 
I want God to be bigger than I am. I want God to be able to do things that I can't. For if God was limited to what I could think and what I could do, he would cease being God. And I don't want that for my God. And so we're going to see here in chapter 9 of Romans that we can trust God with the whosoevers. There are these whosoevers throughout Scripture that talk about whoever would come, let him come. Whoever would follow me, let him deny himself and follow me. Whoever would receive me, I will give him the right to become the child of God. These whosoevers, whosoever believes in me will not perish but have everlasting life. We can trust God with the management and the superintending of these whosoevers. And I pray that you would be one of those who's included in the ones who believe, who receive Christ, who trust him, who deny themselves, who follow him, and when he beckons, that you are the one that comes to him in confidence. And I pray that you are one of those whosoevers. So let's look into the text of Romans chapter 9 and discover some of these truths inspired by God through the Apostle Paul to us today, and let's see if this brings us some encouragement and some challenge in our walk with the Lord. Let's start in verses 1 through 5. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Paul begins here with no small laying of his hand on a Bible, swearing before God and these witnesses uh, type of a proclamation. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. This is Paul saying, I do solemnly swear. And he does so by the most powerful, uh, most meaningful, most significant means of swearing anything. What do you think Paul thinks of Christ? As you think about the different things that Paul says about Christ through his letters, does he not fully comprehend that Christ has the ability to redeem, that Christ has the ability to judge? Christ is the one who has brought Paul into a relationship with God. Christ is the one who has baptized him in the Holy Spirit. Christ is the one and only power, the one and only person, the one and only ultimate reality that has ultimate authority to do anything he wants with Paul and has graciously done so much to bless Paul. And Paul knows that if he is to separate himself from Christ, to offend Christ in a blasphemous way, that he puts himself in dire straits. He puts himself in a place where he wouldn't want to be, you wouldn't want to be, I wouldn't want to be. And he swears in this way, to, according to the highest, most, uh, most powerful thing he can imagine solemnly swearing to. And he says, I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit this, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. 
for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. You see, Paul was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was raised in a Jewish house, taught in the Jewish schools, uh, discipled by a Jewish rabbi. He grew up with the utmost teaching, the utmost respect, the utmost assurance and knowledge that he was part of the Jewish people, the chosen people of God, and he dearly, dearly loved his brothers and sisters in the flesh. Those uh, Jewish friends maybe that he grew up with, those Jewish uh, folks in the synagogues where he would go and, and try to teach them the truth of Christ, and maybe they wouldn't uh, believe him, they would not receive Christ as Messiah. Paul says here, if there was any way that I could take their place, if there was a way where I could be cut off from Christ to allow my brothers and sisters in the Jewish race, the ones who were given the patriarchs and the law and worship and all the Old Testament promises and all that they were, if there's some way that I could, I could let myself take their punishment for eternity, I would take it so that they, my brothers and sisters, could enter into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Was he serious? He wouldn't have sworn by the name of Christ if he wasn't. When I read those words, my heart begins to break because I realize so many people around me are in the same position as the Jewish people in the first century that Paul longed for. And Paul said, if I could be cut off, I would be. Is my passion for lost souls anywhere close to where Paul's was? Would I be willing to give up what I have in Christ? Would I be willing to give up what I have in a relationship with God so that my family, my friends, those that I love could enter into a relationship with God? Would I do that? How deep is my love for my brothers and sisters? And how sincere is my understanding of the punishment that awaits those who do not call on the name of the Lord to be saved? Is my heart that broken for those around me? I have to stop. I have to think. And it doesn't take me long to realize that I have to do some changing. And I need to let God do some breaking of my heart. And we all need God to do some additional breaking of our hearts so that we might see the value of those who have never called on the name of the Lord and looking at the punishment that awaits them, does it break us to the point where we would do anything to see them forgiven? Now the thing is, Paul can't. I can't give up my salvation for someone else. All I can do is live out my salvation and live out the calling God has put on me in hopes that somehow by my life, by my witness, by, word, by my words and my actions, that somehow, some way, more people would give themselves to Christ. Is your heart broken? Will you allow yourself to die to yourself in, other, in, in a way that will allow others to come into a relationship with Christ? It's a sobering thought. Can we trust God with that? If I can't make that decision for someone else, can I trust God that he will do what is right, that he will do what is just, that he will do what is merciful, 
to all of those who are yet to call on his name? Will he give them a chance? Or will he leave them abandoned? Why did he choose me? Is God just in the decisions that he makes? Can God be trusted with the whosoevers? This is the question that Romans 9 asks, and I believe it also answers. Can God be trusted with the whosoevers? In order to make his point here, Paul launches into what we call a diatribe, where he takes the questions that the reader would probably be asking, asks them himself, and then answers them. He's done this throughout the book of Romans, and he does it again here. You see, earlier in the book of Romans, in chapter 3 and also in chapter 2, some Paul talks about how the Jews have been cut off. Paul talks about how uh, this Jewish nation who was given the hope of a relationship with God uh, cannot be let off the hook. How they stand condemned if they do not embrace Christ as Messiah. Uh, Paul talks about this uh, to the extent that someone at this point who is reading about not being separated from the love of Christ, uh, which we just talked about in Romans chapter 8, when someone reads, nothing will ever separate us from the love of God, the Jewish person might be saying, then why did God give up on the Jewish people? If they were his chosen people, then maybe something can separate you from God's love. Maybe God got tired of the Jewish people and said, I'm done with them. And maybe the same could happen for you and me. Maybe God would get tired with his 21st century church. Maybe, would get, maybe God would get tired of me, of you, of other people who frustrate him because they don't perfectly obey. Maybe God would get sick of us, and maybe it's God's own impatience that could separate us from his love. Maybe this is the question someone's beginning to ask because they realize, wait, the Jewish people were gods, and apparently he gave up on them. Can God be trusted with the whosoever's? Can God be sovereign over this world? Can he be sovereign over its outcome and still allow man to have free will? Is that even possible? Or does man's free will mean that God cannot be in control? Is God subject to my choice today if I'm going to obey or disobey? Is God waiting thinking, I wonder what he's going to do? And I'm out of control based on what, whatever Gabe does today. If he obeys, then maybe this will play out. If he disobeys, then that will play out. And the countless amounts of variables that, that play out of mankind's decision, is God subject to all of those? And is he out of control as to what will actually happen? Is God out of control because I might choose to be kind or unkind today? Is God out of control because I choose A instead of B? Is God out of control because I choose to follow him or choose to not follow him? Is it possible that God could be in complete control and that mankind could have free will? These are the questions that begin to arise out of a chapter like this because we see that people are choosing God, people are not choosing God. God is choosing people and God is not choosing people. Who's in control? Let me just say this, that before I claim to think that in the next however many minutes we are here together today, lest I think that I'm going to somehow convince you of exactly what it is and lay out in three beautiful points exactly how this works, I don't believe we can plumb the depths of God's sovereignty. I don't think we can begin to understand how he controls 
and how he still allows for free will. I'll say it to you like this. In Jeremiah chapter 12, Jeremiah lets out his complaint. God, how long will you? God, how could you? God, you need to do this, God. I don't understand why you wouldn't do that, God. Jeremiah lays out his complaint before the Lord in Jeremiah chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. And God responds in this way to Jeremiah. He says, If you have raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how will you compete with horses? And the implication there and what this is meaning from God to Jeremiah is if you can't figure out how to manage mankind, if you can't figure out how to answer your own questions about what's going on with your own people, how is it that you think you can even begin to keep pace with me? God says, I understand my ways are higher. I have knowledge. I have superiority. God has all this that we don't have. And he says to Jeremiah, you could not even begin to keep up with me in all that's required for me to be the good, sovereign, loving, just, merciful, kind God that I am. So right at the onset, I want to tell you today that I'm going to offer you truth from God's word. But there's going to be a point at which you and I have to trust God and leave him to be the one to manage the whosoevers. Let him be the one who determines and orchestrates and superintends the process of who comes while at the same time leaving it up to mankind to individually choose to follow him. Let's look then a little further into Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 13. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is, uh, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though he were not yet born, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. Isaac and Ishmael. Just because you have some connection with a bloodline doesn't mean you are spiritually reborn. Here we have the story of Ishmael and Isaac, two sons of Abraham. Abraham promised in his old age by God that you would have a son who would become uh, the one through which the nation of Israel would be born. And Abraham constructed some things in his own way, had a child with Hagar named Ishmael, and God said, no, it's not about physical bloodline. It's not just because you figured out a way to have a son that now this is the one. No, you are going to have a son by my supernatural power, and this is going to illustrate how my children for all time will be supernaturally and spiritually born, not born of a bloodline. As God brought Isaac to life miraculously, 
so he brings us to life today miraculously, supernaturally, restoring the spirit within us which was dead in its transgressions and sins, making us alive as individuals, not as nations, not as church bodies, not as groups, but as individual followers, believers, and receivers of the gift of Jesus Christ. I was born into a Christian family. Okay, being a part of God's family is a matter of your choice spiritually, not a choice of your bloodline. You say, my parents had me baptized in the church where I was born, and therefore I am now a part of the body of Christ. No, it is not the church that gives you spiritual birth. It is God who gives you spiritual birth, and you must individually choose to be born spiritually. This is illustrated through how God chose Isaac, the son of the promise, not Ishmael, the son who manufactured a way to be born into the bloodline of Abraham. Also, Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau. God says, Jacob I have loved, Esau I hated. This verse in and of itself has caused splits of denominations and churches too many to count over the ages. What does it mean that God loved Jacob and hated Esau? Is it simply that, that when two children are born, God says, I choose Jacob, I'm going to love him, I'm going to welcome him into my family, and Esau, I hate him, I don't want to have anything to do with him, therefore he will not be part of my family. Does God arbitrarily, unconditionally, just choose some for salvation and some for damnation? Is that what's being said here? I think we need to understand the way the word hate is used throughout the New Testament. This is not the only place where God talks about hating. There's a passage in Luke chapter 14 where Jesus says to his followers, If you want to be my disciple, hate your mother, your father, your brother, even your own life. Does God literally want you and me to hate our parents in order to follow him? Does God want me to hate my brother so I can follow him? Does God want me to hate my own life in order to follow him? Do I have to hate those physical relationships in order to truly love God? Certainly not. We're supposed to honor our parents. We're supposed to obey them when we're young and continue to honor them even into old age. This is hyperbole. This is a comparison speech that God gives uh, through Christ here in Luke chapter 14. He does it elsewhere in Scripture where God speaks in such a, a, a contrasting way to show us the depth of our passion for him. Think about how Paul started this chapter out. Oh, that I could give up my life that my brothers in the Jewish lineage would be saved. Here, hyperbole. Hate your mother, hate your father. No, value me so much that you're willing. God says, love me, value me, chase after me so much that you would be willing uh, to deny your parents. If they wanted you to follow their way away from God, be willing to tell them, no, I'm going to follow God. So this is a comparison. This is a hyperbole to show how drastic our love for God must be in comparison to our love for, and honor for our parents in regard to our love for our brothers and sisters and even ourselves. For certainly we are not supposed to hate those that God has put in our lives that he has elsewhere instructed us to love. So God has not hated Esau in the, in the sense that you might think. In comparison to how he chose Jacob 
and loved Jacob to become the father of many nations. Uh, He ended up having the, the 12 sons and the 12 tribes of Israel born out of that. As much as God loved Jacob and chose him for that, he says, Esau, I haven't chosen you for that. In contrast, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Does this mean Esau wasn't blessed? If God hated Esau, why would he bless him? Because we see clearly in Genesis 36, uh, it says, Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. Was, Edom, was Esau just a good businessman that he was able to accumulate this stuff? Well, I'm sure there's some aptitude he had to be able to manage and raise and do this. But we also know that this was God's blessing on Esau. And if God truly hated someone, he would not bless them. God sees fit to bless Esau, to make him a wealthy nation in his own right. Go back to the Isaac and Ishmael comparison. Was Ishmael blessed? Ishmael was not chosen. He was not chosen to be part of the prophetic plan of bringing Israel to be, but God still blessed him. While he wasn't chosen to be part of the salvation process of all mankind, he was blessed. In Genesis 37 through 39, we see that the Ishmaelites are the the rich nomads to whom Joseph is sold into slavery, and they're the ones that take him to Egypt and sell him to Potiphar. We know in Judges 8.24 that the Ishmaelites are told to be a rich people possessing gold of great value. The Ishmaelites were blessed as well, but they were not chosen to be part of God's salvation plan. This love-hate relationship that God speaks of, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, Isaac I chose, Ishmael I did not, has a lot to do in the Old Testament with the election towards a task or a calling, not necessarily salvation. Isaac was chosen as the bloodline to the Messiah, not Ishmael. Jacob was chosen as the bloodline to Messiah, not Esau. And Jacob's 12 sons, only one of them could be the the grandfather of the Messiah, and it was chosen that Judah would be the one. God has chosen. God chooses those he he uses for certain purposes throughout the history of the world. This is not talking about uh, salvation here. This is talking about election for the purpose of what God has them to fulfill on this world so that salvation could then come to all the whosoevers. And God is managing the whosoevers by how he manages the election of certain people to see the opportunity for salvation made manifest in your life, mine, and to the ends of the world. Can we trust God with that process of choosing those whom and how he will use in order to bring the gospel to all mankind? Let's continue on in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Is God just? Paul stops here for a minute to ask a question. Can we trust him? Is there injustice in God? In America, we have a problem with authority. We have a government system that is founded not on trust, but on mistrust. 
When you look at the way our United States government is made up, we have a judicial branch, an executive branch, and a legislative branch. And right now, today, in our day, those branches of government are at odds with one another. There is no better example of why we have these branches of government except for what's going on today, right now. Our Constitution has established these because our government is not built on a trust system, but on a mistrust system. That we need to have checks and balances to keep people from becoming uh, selfish, uh, ill-motivated, and um, moving toward a way that they would push their own agendas at the expense of our Constitution and at the expense of the American people. And so we as Americans have a bit of a problem with trusting authority sometimes because of how our nation is some at, at different points along the way. And right now is certainly one of those seasons where we have a lot of mistrust in our government system. But God, however, is not like that. God can be trusted in how he manages things. Let's look at these next few verses and see how God manages Israel and Pharaoh while they're in captivity in Egypt. Starting in verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whomever he will. How could it be fair? In, in, the, in the overall scheme of all humanity, how could it possibly be fair that God says man has the free will to choose him, but at the same time, he hardens Pharaoh's heart. How could God be a just and loving God and harden someone's heart so they would not choose him and then hold them accountable for their choice? It's backwards to think that God would do that. In our human minds, we look at that and we say, that's not fair. But have you looked at what's actually going on here? This is not simply God hardens Pharaoh's heart, makes it so Pharaoh could never be saved, and therefore God is damning him to hell without even giving him a choice in the matter. That's not what's happening. If you look at the story of Exodus, you see that Pharaoh's heart was hardened at different times. And we only see that God was the subject of the sentence doing the hardening one time. And that was after the sixth plague. After the sixth plague had come, it says that God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Up to that point, Exodus chapter 7 says, still Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Later, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Later, Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. Exodus chapter 8, when Pharaoh saw that there was relief from one of the earlier plagues, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them. Pharaoh was the one hardening his heart. Verse 19, but Pharaoh's heart was hardened. 8.32, Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also. Chapter 9, verse 7, the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. Pharaoh is the one who's the subject of doing the hardening. He's hardening his heart against God. He's hardening his heart against God's people. 
Pharaoh is the one saying, no, I'm in charge. I'm on the throne of my life. I'm not going to surrender to this God. I'm not going to surrender to his people. I'm going to keep doing what I want to do because I'm the most important person in this scenario. And these Israelites need to be kept squashed. They need to be kept trapped because I don't want them to rise up against me. And so I am hardening my heart. I don't want to have any sympathy on them. I don't even want to have sympathy on my own people who are suffering because I'm in charge. And Pharaoh's the one who hardened his heart. It is then after the sixth plague in Exodus 9:12 it says the Lord now hardened the heart of Pharaoh. You see God had an intended purpose for Pharaoh. His purpose with Pharaoh was to to build up his nation of Israel to make them strong, to give them knowledge of how to build and how to to uh, channel water to different crops that needed it, irrigation systems. The Egyptian culture was very advanced, and Israel was able to grow from the small family of Jacob to a large nation with knowledge and understanding of how things worked, protected within the culture of the Egyptians while famine ravaged the world around them. And at the right time, God used Moses to set the people free from Egypt. And God used Pharaoh's hardened heart, the one he hardened himself before God then hardened it. God used Pharaoh as the tool to give the people faith and to give the people the picture of the Passover, which becomes instrumental in our understanding of what Jesus, the Lamb of God, has done to take away the sins of the world. This was all part of God's elective plan to show how mankind would come, not just for the Jewish people, but for how salvation would come to the entire world, to you and to me as individuals, if we will become part of the whosoevers. Pharaoh's heart was finally hardened by God. But let me ask you this. Because Pharaoh's heart was hardened that day, there is nothing in Scripture that says Pharaoh's heart remained hardened because God kept it that way. Think about this. There is nothing that says after that that Pharaoh could not have submitted himself to God's will. I don't know if this would have happened, could have happened. I don't know. This is conjecture. But since there is nothing in Scripture that says God hardened Pharaoh's heart once and for all, for all time, and left him unable to ever be given grace, it is possible that Pharaoh could have sat in Egypt, not chased after the Israelites, and at some point later in life come to realize that he needed to bow his knee to this God of heaven. Could have happened. Or even if he had pursued the Israelites, when they were blocked by the cloud and could not get to them, and finally the cloud moved, and, and Pharaoh and his army came up to the edge of the Red Sea and saw the water piled up on both sides, and the nation of Israel off in the distance, finishing their journey across the Red Sea on dry ground. Do I think it's possible? Yes. Pharaoh could have that moment dropped to his knees and said, God, I relent. There is nothing in Scripture that says Pharaoh did not ever have an opportunity to give his heart to God. While God did harden his heart at one point during the sixth plague, there is nothing that says Pharaoh could not, as the prodigal son did, come to his senses on the banks of the Red Sea, drop to his knees, and call out for mercy from God Almighty. God is in charge of managing the whosoevers. Has your heart been hard for a long time? 
Have you been through seasons where you've gotten so angry at God that you've said, no, God, I can't trust you. No, God, I don't understand your love. I don't want to understand your love. Too many bad things have happened. I can't understand it. Do not let your heart get hardened to the point where it never surrenders to God. But today, find yourself on the banks of your Red Sea, looking at God's faithfulness, at what he's done to bring you through so much, and surrender to God. Don't let your hard heart stay hard. You may have hardened your heart against God. God may have at different points been using you as a tool to bring salvation to all mankind by hardening your heart at different moments. But if today your heart is soft, if right now you are sensing the love of God and how he has orchestrated forgiveness for all mankind, and if you want to be a part of that, Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to let the Holy Spirit convict you of sin. Today is the day to let the Holy Spirit bring you a new life, a new transformation, to surrender yourself to the work that only God can do to make you new, to give you hope, to give you a future, and to adopt you into his family that you might be part of his children today, for the rest of your life, and for all of eternity. Does God have the freedom to orchestrate scenarios in Pharaoh's life to bring about the redemption of his people from Egypt and to ultimately illustrate the redemption of all mankind? Does God have the freedom to do that? Or do you want to be in charge? This is one of the big questions that comes up throughout this chapter. Let's keep looking. Uh, Verse 19. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Does God have the freedom to be the potter and we the clay? Do you give God the freedom to be in charge of doling out his mercy as he sees fit? Because if you're okay with God doling out mercy to you, you'd better be willing to let God dole out mercy to everyone else. And if God is going to dole out judgment on someone else, you'd better be willing to let him dole it out on you. For that is what we deserve. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. God is free to judge God is free to forgive. God is free to show mercy and kindness. And and many of you watching right now have experienced that kindness and that mercy. And the question I want to ask you right now is go back to verses 1 through 5. And has the gift of mercy that you have received become just your little selfish gift? Or does your heart break for those who don't yet know? There are many whosoevers out there that, that will believe that will receive Christ, who will be adopted as the children of the King of kings and Lord of lords. There are many out there who would come and need to come. Is your heart breaking for them today? Is God free 
to give you mercy? Is God free to give out judgment? Or do you want to play God? I guarantee you today that my understanding of Scripture is, and my firm belief is, that God is not going to mess things up. If we trust him with the whosoevers, he will do what's right. He may harden a heart for a time. He may choose for a specific purpose, you or me, for a certain thing. But at the end of the day, our salvation comes down to an individual choice at some moment in our lives to surrender to God, drop to our knees, confess him as Lord, and welcome him into our lives to forgive our sins and to make us new. The problem remains these two statements, that if God is free to choose, then he might just exclude some people arbitrarily if it's all up to him, and that doesn't seem fair. On the other hand, if man is always free to only choose what he has, then God cannot know and he is not ultimately in charge. I don't think either one of those scenarios is accurate all by itself. God is not so much in charge that he arbitrarily chooses and that you can't do anything to choose whether you're part of his kingdom or not. And I don't believe that man is ultimately free to make his own choice to exclude God from the ability to superintend the process. Could it somehow be a mixture of both? I don't know. I can't make sense of it all in my mind. But I can't run with horses either. God's ways are so much higher than mine. Take, for example, things in Scripture that we just accept without being able to explain. Three in one? Sure, take an egg, take an apple, take water, take any number of ways you've heard the Trinity explained. None of them really say what it is. None of them really, in human terms, describe how there could be three separate realities of God, yet only one God, and one was in heaven, and one was hanging on the cross, and somehow they forsook each other, and then the Holy Spirit came later, and it, my mind doesn't understand it, and I'm okay with that. How could God be eternally existent with no beginning? How could the day that he began, he has already been here for a million years? And on day of one of those a million years, he'd already been here for an eternity. It doesn't make sense. It's similar to questions like this. Can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? Well, of course he can make a rock so big that he can't. Wait, but he could always lift it. We, we paint ourselves into these corners with our theology sometimes saying, well, we have to be able to answer the question. No, we don't. We can trust God with the management of the whosoever will come, and we can trust God with the management of how salvation comes to all mankind and how he uses individuals to help make that happen. Job questioned God. That didn't last too long. And finally, Job said, okay, God, you're right. I don't know. Jeremiah said, I can't run with horses. Today, I say, I don't know all the answers, God, but I trust you with the whosoevers. I trust you with whosoever will come, let him come, it says in the book of Revelation. I trust God with whosoever will believe, let him believe, in John 3.16. I believe that I can trust God with whosoever would follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. I agree with all the whosoever's in Scripture, which means the choice is yours. Will you surrender to Christ? Will you deny yourself? Will you believe in him? Will you receive him into your life? And as John chapter 1 says, 
be adopted into the family of God. Will you do that? Or do you get hung up on this idea that somehow God is unjust, somehow God isn't loving enough, I can't trust him? What about this Potter explanation that he has in Romans chapter 9? Is God just destroying some people? Now, does, does God really take a lump of clay as he makes it, say, well, this one will never amount to anything, but i got to make it anyway so I can destroy it. And he takes another one and he makes it and says, this one's going to be beautiful. I'm going to welcome this one into my kingdom. This one's going to be wonderful. Does God really do that? Does he just make a human so he can destroy it? God is not fabricating any one of us and at our very fabrication saying, this one's damned to hell, but i got to make it anyway. No, God is making all of mankind, understanding that many will be thrown into the fire. Many will be judged. Many will become worthless by their own choosing. But if you think you're one of those beautiful pots that was made from the very beginning to be this beautiful pot and you never had a chance of being damned, you're wrong. Every one of us was created by the potter, thrown on the wheel, created and put into this world as a fallen, hell-bound sinner. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. It's a gift, this eternal life, that any one of us begins to to have. God doesn't create any one individual specifically saying, this one is damned from the beginning. This one may be used by God and may go through some trials for God in order to illustrate how salvation is available to all mankind. But like Pharaoh, there will come a day when every individual has the chance to drop to their knees, whether it's on the banks of the Red Sea or on the throne in his own palace, will have that opportunity to say, God, okay, I give up. I'm done fighting for myself. I'm done with me being on the throne of my life. I need you. I need you. God didn't make any one of us ultimately only predestined for hell. He gives everyone the opportunity to respond. Verse 24. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says to Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call my beloved. And in the very place where it has said to them, you are not my people, there there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and and been like Gomorrah. God is more than fair. God says to Hosea that there are people who are not mine yet, but they will be. I've only chosen the Jews at this point, Hosea, but there's a whole rest of the world that's going to receive my love. God is more than fair to not only choose the Jews and give them the opportunity from the very beginning to receive by faith the hope of eternity, but he has also offered to all of mankind 
It's not based on whether you're part of the Jewish bloodline. It's not based on whether you're genetically included in some familial connection back to the very beginning of time. It's an individual whosoever. Whosoever will come. It's interesting to me that while genealogies were so important in the Old Testament, once you get to Christ, genealogies stop. Think about it. By the time Christ eventually came as Messiah, he is now the one in whom we need to put our faith. There is no need for another Messiah to come. There's no need for anyone to enter into God's bloodline through physical birth. Christ never married, never had any children. The lineage to the Messiah stopped that day. But the family of God did not. For you and I can be adopted into the family of God, not as children of Christ, but as brothers and sisters. Adopted in. Christ, the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, and we all have the opportunity to call upon the name of the Lord and to enter into that family of God because of what Christ has done. There are so many people that are not yet part of God's kingdom, not yet loved in the way that they could be loved, not understanding the love that God has for them. But thanks be to God that he is faithful to superintend the process, to bring about salvation for all who would call on his name, all the whosoevers. That is God's beautiful gift to us as mankind. This gift is received by faith. In the last couple verses of Romans chapter 9, what shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to, lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. In the Old Testament, there was a law that was given. And we know from teaching in Hebrews and Romans and other places that even though there was a law to follow, that it was the faith of the individual in the God behind the law that saved them, not their doing of the law itself. And this became a stumbling block for many Jews. And it becomes a stumbling block for many modern-day Christians. For we think that somehow we do all these good things for God and we win points. And then we see someone else come along and enter into a beautiful, loving relationship with God with seemingly no effort at all, except all they did was surrender. And we can quickly begin to say things like, wait, I worked hard for this. How is it that I had to work so hard and they get in for, for nothing? Many Jewish believers in the first century said, wait, 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 we've done all these laws, we've done all this stuff to, to please God so that we might be part of his family, and now people are just waltzing into it? They don't have to go through the things I went through to become a Jew. And it became a stumbling block. It became an offense to them saying, how dare God give it so freely to people when I had to work so hard for it? The problem is they didn't have to work so hard for it. They had to have faith in what they were doing. And it was by faith that God gave them eternal life. It wasn't in the hard work they did to do the things to follow the law. It's the same today. Am I part of the kingdom of God because I've done so many good things? Am I part of the kingdom of God because I'm part of a church family and I go there every Sunday to worship, which we can't even do right now? 
Am I part of the family of God because my parents had me baptized in the church when I was a kid? Am I part of the family of God for all of eternity because I memorized some verses in Sunday school? Am I part of the family of God because there was a time way back when that I said, sure, yeah, God, Jesus, the Bible died on the cross for my sins. Sure, yeah, I believe it. Yep, I'm good. I'm part of the family of God. Is that what makes you part of the family of God? Or is it an ongoing faith for every whosoever that would believe? For every whosoever that would deny themselves and follow Christ day by day. There's a faith we must have that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. There's a faith that we must have that Jesus is the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. There's a faith that we have to have to be included in God's kingdom. And God sits on his throne, and God gets intimately involved in all of mankind for all of, all of time, orchestrating and, 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 and superintending the process by which salvation comes to some people and comes to others, and how he uses people like Pharaoh even to be a tool in his hands. But God longs that even Pharaoh himself would one day fall to his knees and receive him. And the same is true for every person that walks this planet. Where are you today? Are you lovingly walking with God? Then praise him that you are one who had the chance to be a whosoever. If you have yet to fully give yourself to Christ, then today you can be one of the whosoevers. If you feel like your heart is hard toward God right now, just ask him in all honesty to soften your heart toward him. God, I want to believe in you, but I'm having trouble right now. Help me, God. He will. He's very welcoming to those who want to come. And if you have questions about how you can do that, in the description of this video is an altar response link. Click on that link. It'll send me a message, and I can follow up with you to help you understand that you can trust the God of the whosoevers. You can trust God to manage that whole process, and you can be one of those who is welcomed into his presence for all eternity. God bless you today, wherever you are, whenever you are watching this. I pray that God's truth penetrates your heart and that you know how deep and how wide and how strong is God's love for you. God bless you today.